All right. Why don't I, um, why don't I pray for us, and then we're, we'll begin looking at, again at Luke 22. Let's pray. Uh, Father, the, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, expressed his heart, and it forms a, an amazing prayer for us this morning, uh, that we would know him, that we would know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That we might know him. God, we want to know Jesus Christ better today. We want to know him in the fullest way that that's possible for us. And so God, as we get your word open, we're privileged to be here. We're privileged to have your word in our hands and to be able to hear it proclaimed. Father, I pray that we would be changed, not just informed, but changed by the power of the resurrection of Christ. And these things we pray in his strong name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? It was right out of scripture, so you better agree with it, right? It's like, it's right there. All right, just in time for Easter, a couple of new uh, TV series are um, on Either they're on right now or they're coming up. The first is that the History Channel um, has a brand new eight-part series out uh, called uh, Jesus, His Life. And uh, that actually premiered, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, but that's on the hist- History Television, and you can, uh, ch- you can check that, that one out. Um, and a second series called The Chosen was written by a, a guy by the name of Dallas Jenkins, who uh, some of us know. Um, and that's going to be streamed online at VidAngel, and I have uh, checked out that that is available in Canada. So VidAngel is streaming uh, directly there, and that starts on April the 16th. Now, this, this happens every year. We get some news series about Jesus, and magazines publish articles, and the popularity of series like these betrays the fact that though uh, people may not follow Jesus, and, and the majority of people in our culture do not follow Jesus. But though people may not follow Jesus, they sure are interested in him. There's no way people are producing TV series and writing articles. and there, There's no way that's happening unless there's interest in culture as a whole to find out more about him. And the question of who Jesus is was one that characterized, in fact, his entire ministry. His ministry was about us discovering who Jesus Christ is. Prior to his birth, the angel had declared, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, you shall call his name Jesus. And that's not just a nice name. We're going to do a child dedication this afternoon here. We don't just tag names onto kids because we like the sound of it. We're, We're adding meaning to these names. And, and Jesus' name was packed with meaning. It, it, it was the, 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 uh, the Greek form of Joshua. The, this is God who saves. This was an announcement and a proclamation that, that Jesus Christ, this child, was to be the Savior of the world. Jesus, Jesus himself, in the midst of his ministry, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, he, he went to his disciples, and, and after doing some teaching and performing some miracles and carrying on some ministry... He went to his disciples, who, who do people, who are, who are the crowds saying that I am? They answered, and, and then he said, who do you think that I am? And, Paul, and, and Peter made this incredible proclamation of who Jesus, who Jesus was. And it would be his identity, his claim to be the Messiah, and in fact, his claim to be God. 
that it would eventually see him condemned by the religious leaders because they would ask him, and this is what we see in today's passage, they would ask him, are you the son of God then? Are you the son of God? And everything hinged on the answer to that question. Everything that the religious leaders wanted to accomplish hinged on how Jesus would answer that question. And it still does for us today. People then, people now, people who follow him, people who hate him and are his enemies, everyone wondering who exactly Jesus is. Because when you and I find out, it has serious implications for our lives. And from this passage, we're going to ask the question, do you know him? Do you know him? And what are you going to do about it? So turn to Luke chapter 22. You're probably already there since we've been there for five weeks. Um, Luke 22. We will finish chapter 22 today. Uh, beginning at verse 54 through, through 71. I'll read this and then we'll get after it. Then they seized him. The religious leader seized Jesus. They seized him and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. We see some things about Jesus here. And so the question we want to ask over and over again as we see different elements of this account uh, is this one. Uh, Do you know the one? Do you know the one? And let's start with this. Do you know the one who suffered injustice? Um, If you do, follow him. Notice verse 54 starts, they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Now, you remember the context here, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before his crucifixion, obviously. He has uh, been arrested just in this very moment. 
He went to the garden to pray. He encouraged his disciples to pray. They fell asleep instead. They fell into temptation. They all scattered at the coming of Judas, the betrayer, with this crowd to seize him. And in in this moment, they, they arrest him and they take him to the high priest's house. This is a matter of great injustice. And when you think about justice, please don't think that it was different then than it is now. There were rules, there were laws in place that both the Jews and the Romans would have been following, both of whom had some jurisdiction in this case. And I want you to think for a second about how unusual this situation is by thinking of this. Say the prime minister is aware of something illegal that happens. Now, 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 we are apolitical in this church. I didn't think you'd catch on to it that fast. I thought maybe by the end you would have caught on to it. So think about how unusual it would be if the prime minister said to the RCMP, I want you to go and arrest this guy. I want you to do it tonight away from any of the crowds. I don't want there to be any any cell phone video of this that shows up afterwards. I I, I want you to bring him to my official residence and I'm going to question him myself before you take him off to prison. Now that would be unusual. That would be unusual. Again, there were rules. There were rules of justice in both the Jewish and Roman systems. And this is by every account, at, at every turn, any way you look at it, this is an act of injustice. This is an illegal arrest. And yet the injustice that Jesus faced was just getting started. And we saw earlier in verse 37 that Jesus himself had said, this is the way it has to go down. This is a, a, there's a prophecy being fulfilled here, Jesus said. It's from Isaiah 53, verse 12, that I'm going to have to be numbered among the transgressors. I'm going to have to be considered a criminal. Though we know that he is sinless. Now, this is more than just, you know, we have this, this uh, dramatic event happening and, and we're adding to the dramatic tension. We have this injustice happening. This is, this is about more than just kind of raising up the stakes on the tension in the narrative. This is more than just an interesting little factoid about justice in the first century that, that we're supposed to learn something about injustice. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's more than just something to be upset about. Like, oh, poor Jesus that this happened to him. This actually sets up Jesus' worthiness to give his life for us. His qualification to be the Savior. Only the sinless, perfect Son of God could sacrifice his life in place of ours. Only he could take our sin upon himself. In fact, in 1 Peter, the apostle writes this, 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. He didn't suffer repeatedly. He suffered once. He died once for our sins on the cross. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous. How many unrighteous people here this morning? Okay, all of us. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The unjust arrest, the beatings that he would endure that we'll see in a moment, the mocking of him, the crucifixion itself were all part of what had to happen. 
And so do you know the one who suffered injustice on your behalf? Because the implication is that you must follow him into his own death and into your own death. Following him then brings this upon us. Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That sounds like what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And Jesus says to us, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, he says. I mean, those don't normally sound like the kind of things you would rejoice in or the kinds of things that you would leap for joy over. Why would we? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So the Jewish leaders and Romans did to Jesus. When you face the same injustice that the prophets faced, that Jesus faced, you'll be blessed, you'll rejoice. Because listen, you're doing the Christian life right. If your Christian life is so easy to live, if it is going unchallenged by people around you, then you should rethink your Christian life. What you have may not be Christian, In the Jesus Bible sense of that. Maybe you're not following him. Maybe you're only aware that he was treated unjustly. But you haven't committed to him. Do you know the one who suffered injustice? Follow him. And do you know the one who, notice this next, offered grace? Acknowledge him. Who offered grace? These next um, little episode, this next little episode, this next verses are painful to watch, to read. They're cringeworthy. Jesus told him in verse 34, one of our previous messages, that that Peter's going to be called out by a rooster. Roosters are annoying creatures. They are annoying creatures. And um, I've had occasion, I, I just recall... 16 years old, 17 years old, whatever it was when I was uh, in Haiti, my first mission trip, just trying to serve Jesus for a month, you know, down there, build a school. This crazy rooster outside our window every morning, three or four o'clock in the morning. Who gets up that early? Just crowing, crowing, crowing. Roosters are annoying. Are they not? Everybody agrees. Roosters are annoying. Peter's going to get called out by a rooster for denying three times that he knows Jesus. Now, to his credit, it seems that the other disciples have already completely scattered. To his credit, he's there with Jesus, following at a distance, but he's there. Peter, Peter takes a lot of hits in the Gospels, doesn't he? Let's, let's give him a little check mark here. He's at least following Jesus. From a distance, verse 54 says. And then he settles in, verse 55, to the courtyard area. They, they got a fire going and a bunch of other people are there, presumably people that might have been in the crowd, I don't know. 
And then three individuals over the space of, I don't know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours, something like that. Three individuals approach him. First 56, this servant girl comes up and she seems to, rather than talking directly to Peter, she seems to just announce it to the people, everyone who's there in the crowd. Uh, She just seems to announce um, that uh, Peter was with Jesus, verse 57, but he denied it. I don't know him. Verse 58, someone else saw him. You're you're one of them. Peter said, "I'm, I'm not. Finally, like an hour goes by and another person insists. I mean, you just picture this person sitting by the fire, looking at Peter the whole time going. And then after an hour, he finally says, no, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. He's Galilean. You're, you're a part of them. And he, he gives his little proof that there because he heard the accent. The Galilean accent, a little known fact, sounds a lot like a Newfoundland accent. I don't think a lot of people knew that. Any, any newfies here? <laughs> Father, forgive me. <laughs> Verse 60, but Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, the words were still rolling out of his mouth and immediately the rooster crowed. The devastating part is verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's a dagger in the heart, isn't it? Just looked at him. Most most kids, when they do something wrong, they don't want to get the look from mom. You know what I'm talking about? You know about the look from mom? How many moms here would say you have a look? All the moms. All the moms. How many kids? How many kids here would say, "Mom has a look"? Yeah, mom has a look, right? Husbands are saying, "I know the look. <laughs> I get the look too. I get the look too." I don't know how you feel right after you've sinned willfully, but I'm going out on a limb here to say that you wouldn't want Jesus glancing over and watching you do it. Would you? I mean, that depends on, on how you interpret the look. That depends on what you think the look is actually communicating. Verse 61, Peter sees Jesus looking at him and immediately he remembered the saying. He's, he feels like that child who's been caught. And verse 62 says he he went out and he did what is completely appropriate. He went out and he wept bitterly. From Peter's limited in the moment perspective, he's been crushed. He's gone from back in verse 33. "I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die for you. This thing that we've been about, I'm all in, Peter says. And he's gone from that to, I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. And that happened. I mean, for us, that happened over a period of like five weeks as we've been looking at each of these messages. But this is happening in the space of just a couple of hours. From his bold proclamation of, I'm, good, I'm ready to go to prison and die for you to, to I don't even know him. 
Now, what Peter doesn't know at this point is is the grace that that Jesus is pouring out on him. That's, That's the part he doesn't realize right now. Because the look, no, I get it. When your mom looks at you like that, that's condemnation. That is, I did something wrong. But when Jesus looks at Peter, that's not condemnation. That's compassion. That's grace. That's, Peter, I told you you were going to deny me, and I'm looking at you right now because I knew this is exactly how this whole thing was was going to go down and I want you to know I still love you and I'm still for you and I'm working this whole thing out. I have, I have this. I have this, Peter. I have it. From this crushing event, Peter would find enough strength and enough grace from that that in his bewilderment and his confusion after the death and burial of Christ, you look ahead to Luke chapter 24, and who's the first apostle to run to the tomb? Who's the first one to go into the tomb? Who's the one to barge by John who stopped and paused in that moment? Who's the one who comes out of the tomb marveling? Luke 24 says, and what he had seen. It's Peter. Because of that look, because of the grace of God in his life. And Peter would be lovingly restored by the Lord in John 21 in an amazing conversation where the whole incident will be put behind him and he'll go on in the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission. So what what does this mean for, for you and me? Well, the short answer is that God's grace has to be received. That we have to be willing to take it from him as he offers it to us. We're caught in our sin when we're under the condemnation of sin and the penalty of death. We have to acknowledge him. Peter had his thing, but what's your thing? Peter had his sin. We all have our own sin. And we merely have to acknowledge him. That's the point of this, is that we would see the grace of God that he's offering and acknowledge everything that he's done for us. That's as simple as it is. Would you acknowledge the gift? Would you receive the gift from Christ? Several things are true about Peter. Peter could not work off his sin. Jesus, just give me some things that I could do. Give me some, some, some penance that I could perform in order to overcome my sin. He could not give an offering to be forgiven. I work some extra hours. I have this extra money. I'm going to give it to compensate for my sin. He couldn't erase the shame of what he'd done by living a more normal, a more moral life. Or by saying to Jesus, you know, I knew I failed then, but for the next 16 times, I'm going to get it right. No amount of religious practice would save him from this. He needed Jesus. His grace. Undeserved. So important, and I know I say this so often when we talk about grace. Undeserved and unearned favor from God, that's grace. 
He offers it. He's offering it this morning to every person in this room. Acknowledge him and receive that. He's looking at you right now. He's looking at you with grace and compassion right now. Acknowledge him. Here's a third. Do you know the one who bore the shame? If you do, embrace him. It's fair, it's fair to say that no one ever wants to be wrong. No one ever wants to be wrong. We work so hard to defend ourselves. We work hard to give explanations for things. We want to make sure everyone understands what part we did or did not play in this thing or that thing. No one ever wants to bear the shame of admitting they're wrong, even though they may be wrong very often. I mean, this is true even when we do the deed, even when we do what's wrong, even when we sin, we like to hide it. Think Adam and Eve. That pattern that we see in Genesis of Adam and Eve committing their sin and then seeking to conceal it and deny it and blame shift it. I mean, that's a pattern for humanity. Humanity has not changed the pattern of behavior in all the thousands of years since Adam and Eve till now. The Bible is still an excellent and will always be an excellent sociological and, and, and anthropological study because the patterns of human behavior are still true today. We don't like to admit we're wrong. Now, if that's true, when we actually sin, when we actually do things wrong, if that's true that we prefer to hide it, Imagine now how resistant we might be to bearing the shame for something we didn't do. Yeah, we're not even going to go there. But here, look at Jesus. Verse 63. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him, kept asking him, prophesy, make a prediction. Who is it that hits you? Punch, punch, punch. Who hits you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. I mean, it's just abject cruelty. This is the worst of humanity coming out. It's not an isolated incident. It reflects a mob mentality. The most base things in our makeup, acting without any grasp of what they're actually doing it or why they're doing it. Why is it that you hate Jesus so much? I don't really know. Why are you beating him? Because we can. Why are you mocking him? Because it's fun. This is, this is nothing other than testosterone-fueled macho masculinity as it has manifested itself throughout history. We have seen in history Nazi Germany Rwanda, Soviet Russia, how people can do unspeakable things to their own neighbors. Humanity is wretched. It's 
exactly what we're seeing here in the torture of Jesus for something he did not do. Something you did and I did. Hebrews 12, 2 talks about this shame. Jesus is identified here as the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy? That you would have faith in Jesus Christ, that you would have the forgiveness of your sins, that you would have the hope of eternity and the abundant life now, that you would be relieved of the curse of sin and death. That was the joy that was set before him, that Jesus Christ would fulfill the very thing that the Father sent him to do. That was the joy that was in front of Jesus. That's why he endured the cross. Notice now, despising the shame. All of this shame, the entire thing, taking all of our sin upon himself, uh, on himself and allowing the world to say, you're guilty. He, he became that. He became sin for us. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If someone is willing to be shamed on your behalf, to take the blame for your wrong, for your sin, to face the consequences that you should be facing, should you not embrace that person? Hebrews 12.2 actually starts with this, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. That's what we should be doing as he looks at us. We should be looking to him. Do you know the one who bore your shame? Embrace him. And finally, Do you know the one who declared his divinity? Believe in him. Now this is where we really come to the sticking point for all of those who are interested in Jesus and who watch the TV shows and read the articles about him but are unwilling to believe. And they reflect some very established attitudes about Jesus that go back to when he was walking on this earth. Verse 66, after the unlawful seizure, the, the unlawful questioning of him at the high priest's residence, the next morning the assembly of the elders, this is the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, got together to question Jesus. It seems that more than the elders were there, as we're told in the text that the scribes were there and the chief for everybody was there. And they said in verse 67, if you are the Christ, let's just get right to it. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now remember that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the name that he was given. Christ is the title. This is is the Greek form of of the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew form. And so this is the promised one from the line of King David that the Hebrew scriptures predicted would come to save his people, save the people of Israel. That's who, that's who the Christ is. That's who the Messiah is. And so now the religious leaders of Israel are interviewing the Messiah, the very one that they are charged with leading their people to believe in and hope for. 
If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But Jesus said to them, you don't deserve to know. You've, you've so hardened your hearts. You've so closed your minds. You've already decided all of this. You can tell by the way he answers them. If I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. They didn't have any pure motive here. They were already decided about it all. They weren't sincere in heart. They weren't willing to hear or receive their Messiah. And so he continued and said this in verse 69. And this is where he actually does give the answer. And you can tell that he gives the answer. Verse 69, he says, but from, from now on, the Son of Man, that was his favorite phrase to use for himself, from now on, the Son of Man, by the way, not a term that points to his humanity. Often that's misinterpreted. Son of God points to his divinity. Son of Man points to his humanity. Uh, wrong. Son of Man is a phrase right out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And it's an obvious reference in the Old Testament to God himself. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, it is a very powerful declaration of who he is. And that's not lost on the religious leaders. It is a loaded divine reference from Daniel 7. From now on, the Son of Man, referring to himself, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There's no mistaking what he's saying here. And the council did not miss the theological point or the declaration that Jesus had just made. And we know that from the next question. Because now they take son of man and they put a different phrase into their question. They all said, all of them said, everyone said this. Are you the son of God then? You've just made a claim. Are you the son of God then? Are you God I mean, this goes beyond what they even imagined for what the Messiah was. They were imagining the Messiah more as a human leader who would come in the line of David and rescue them, not as God himself. Jews had no concept of that happening. Are you God? And he said to them, is this cheeky? It's Jesus, so, you know. You say that I am. You say that I am. And that's the only answer they're going to get. And one commentator interprets this whole sequence as Jesus saying to the council, you've worded the question. This is Jesus saying this. You've worded the question. I will not deny that I am, but I would have worded it somewhat differently. And in the end, the result is them pronouncing him guilty. Verse 71. This is how you know that he's made a claim to be God. Because of the reaction of the religious leaders. Case closed. Verse 71. Case closed. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. He is guilty as charged. And the gavel falls on top of the judge's bench. Now if that's true. If Jesus is God. That has massive implications for every human being. 
The people who knew the scriptures the best, these religious leaders, they admit it. That's his claim. So there's no way for us reading this, there's no way for us to be neutral about this. You have to pick a side. I mean, either you're with Jesus on this, and by the way, at this point in the gospel narrative, as we're studying through the gospel of Luke, at this point in the narrative, exactly this many people are with him. None. Zero. So either we're with Jesus on this, or, or here's your options from the text, or you're with Peter on this, denying you even know him. I don't, I don't even know the man. Or, or, or you're with the soldiers, mocking him, beating him, shaming him. Or you're with the religious leaders, denying who he is, rejecting him outright. And condemning him. Refuse to believe. That's really what you're saying. One or the other. Refuse to believe and in essence. Be a party to killing him. Or believe in him. Believe his claim. And crown him. As king in your life. That's the choice. Kill him or crown him. Timothy Keller, I I, I took those two words from something that Keller said. Either you'll have to kill Jesus or you'll have to crown him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. His claims don't allow that type of of answer. You see, to know Jesus is more than just information, interest, awareness. To know Jesus is experiential. It's relational. It's intimate. It's personal. And it's transformational. It alters the course of our lives, of our destiny. It gives us purpose and it stamps an identity on us that changes us forever. And so do you know him? That's the question. Do you know him? And what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, I I pray having heard this uh, challenging text and, and all that you've had for us in this, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in this room and in every heart to cause each one of us to carefully consider this. And and God, really to have the goal in this moment that every single soul in this room would choose to crown you, to crown your son as king. But God, I know the hardness of people's hearts. Certainly you do. You know how we can be blinded and how we can lie to ourselves. How we get caught up in our own pain. How we get our eyes on on the world around us rather than on you. We become so selfish and turned inward. 
And in those moments, God, it's just so hard. Sometimes we, we do deny Jesus and, and, and reject him. We walk away and like Peter, weep bitterly, not understanding the grace that's available. So God, I pray that you would be melting the stone cold hearts in this room, that you would be lifting the veil from our eyes and breaking down all the resistances that we have. So that, Father, we would believe that we would embrace that we would acknowledge you Father, that we would follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.